Welcome to another lesson and explore the Bible series. We continue in the book of 1 Thessalonians. This is session number seven in Thessalonians, scheduled for April 24th, 2022. God holds all people accountable for their actions. The key passage for today is 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, and the memory verse for today is chapter 5, verse 8. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. Looking at the background for this first part of chapter 5, we'll see that there's a proper understanding of Jesus' return was foundational for the Thessalonians as they grew in their faith and encouraged one another. Notice that also that what brought joy and hope to Christians would bring judgment on non-believers. So have you ever heard the phrase, while the cat's away, the mice will play? <laughs> it's a phrase that has a, a lot of meanings. Um, I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like that. I was thinking back to when I was in, wow, I guess uh, early, well, fourth, fifth grade elementary school. Teacher was out, and I don't know what came over me. Someone encouraged me to put a tack in the teacher's chair. And when he came back, the first thing he saw was a tack in his chair. And so he asked the question, who put this in my chair? <laughs> and everyone threw me under the bus. And so I had to write a thousand times, I will not put a tack in my teacher's chair uh, on the board. Learned my lesson. While the cat's away, the mice will play, but sometimes you get caught and you get in trouble. So understanding the context of this passage, chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians carried a fairly positive tone. The, the apostle had no real complaints or corrections for the believers in Thessalonica, the he encouraged them to continue growing in love and maturing in their ministry. Uh, to move, he wanted to move them towards a, a deeper walk with Christ, so he gave them some practical instructions. He, he urged them to embrace personal sanctification. We talked about that in an earlier lesson. While this included sexual behavior. It extended to the relationship with all believers and even with unbelievers. Paul also urged them to love others well. He pointed out that they were what they were doing is already because they were obeying what they had learned from God. Paul's greatest concern was that the Thessalonians live with an eye towards the future, specifically the day Jesus would come back. Uh, 
apparently some Christians were afraid that dying before Christ would return would disqualify them from the resurrection. Paul assured them that this was not the case. He emphasized three things. Christ would come back just like he promised. Second thing he emphasizes is that those who died will meet him first in the air. And finally, those who are still alive when Christ returns will unite with them, those who died and with Christ in the air. Paul also knew that there was another side of the coin in regard to the second coming. What brought joy and hope to Christians would also bring judgment on the unbelievers. Instead of being lulled into a false complacency, he challenged the Thessalonians to stay alert for the return of Christ and to work as if he could come at any moment, which he could. So looking at the first section in chapter 5, verses 1 through 3, We'll see references to two distinct groups identified by you and them or they. So verse 1 reads, Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates we do not need to write you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord, that the day the Lord will come is like a thief in the night, while people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Looking at one of the commentaries, Paul had just assured the Thessalonians that every believer, living and dead, would meet Christ in the air when he returned. While believers through the ages have disagreed on some particulars of Christ's return, premillennials, postmillennials, so forth, amillennials, Orthodox Christians have also taught, thought, or taught that he will come back and will call his entire church into himself. Uh, so I don't know all the details about what it will be like when Christ comes. I'm a pro-millennial. He is coming, and I'm all for it. I'm going to be ready when he comes. Since the subject of the second coming has been raised, Paul took the opportunity to review his teachings about end times with Thessalonians. The apostle recognized the importance of holding a proper theological perspective on the times and the seasons. With this, Paul used forms of two Greek words related to one another. Kronos, which is referring to a sequence of time, and kairos, which is referring to an era of time. So the first, Kronos, generally describes the movement of time like time on a clock. Seconds, minutes, hours, etc. The first coming of Jesus could take place at just the right chronos time. 
The second relates to the conditions of the given time. When Jesus began his earthly ministry, he proclaimed the time, kairos, is fulfilled, Mark chapter 1, verse 15. Jesus used kairos in Matthew 13, 30, when referring to the coming judgment as harvest time. Scripture makes it clear that God controls each aspect of time. Despite some misunderstandings and questions, the Thessalonians were on track spiritually and did not need anything else to be written about the details of the return of Christ. They knew and accepted the basics. Instead, the Thessalonians needed to dig deeper into the second coming's implications for the for their lives and their ministry. The Thessalonians held a, an accurate view of Christ's return. One thing they knew very well was that it, it could happen at any moment. Paul did not attempt trying to determine the exact timing. Uh, that was in God's hands. Instead, he focused on practical matters related to Christ's appearance, beginning with the impact uh, on the lost. Paul used the term day of the Lord to describe the second coming, also known as, in Greek, parousia. Uh, The term carries the idea of God's judgment, but also serves as an assurance of his blessings on those who remain faithful. As Paul would describe later in the passage, the purpose of the lost and the redeemed to the day of the Lord will be much different. When Paul described parousia in chapter 4, he noted that Jesus will not come Quietly, the Lord's return will be announced. Remember, it refers to the archangel shout, the the trumpet blast. It's going to be a loud event when he comes. Uh, No one will miss his arrival. Some, however, will be caught off guard because his return will feel like a thief in the night, a real surprise. So Jesus used Similar wording in Luke chapter 12, verses 38 to 40, to emphasize the sudden nature of the event and to encourage vigilance. Peter also used this imagery in 2 Peter 3.10, as did Jesus in John's vision in Revelation, Revelation 3.3 and Revelation 16.15. Again, Paul was not concerned about creating a timeline. He was more interested in helping people know Christ and looking forward to his return. Christ's followers won't be shocked by the second coming. They stand in stark contrast to those who do not know Jesus, people who will be surprised and devastated by the return of Christ. Uh, 
So what factors drive people to want to know the exact time? I think some people think, well, if I know exactly when, I'll get my, I'll get my act together and get my life straightened out just before he comes. That's why I want to know when he comes. So God's, I think, chooses great wisdom in not making clear uh, because that means we are always prepared, always ready for his return. In verse 3, Paul noted that most caught by surprise won't be looking for him. Many will be lulled in a sense of complacency. Paul wrote that these individuals will accept claims of peace and security by believing that all is well. For them, Christ's return will be a shock. Paul noted their sudden destruction, which is prominent in the Greek construction of the sentence. He also compared it to the labor pains of a woman giving birth. Labor pains are unexpected (laughs) uh, to a degree, but come suddenly and uh, can be very severe. How many times does a woman go into labor? Not when it's convenient in the middle of the day to head to the hospital, but in the middle of the night when you're rushing around. Paul summarized the surety of his judgment when he says, they will not escape. They will be separated from Christ completely. And he's referring to both physically and spiritually. They will realize that they have no hope. Once Christ returns, there is no hope because their opportunities to accept his offer of salvation will be gone. This eternal destiny will be sealed. Their eternal destiny will be sealed. So after issuing a clear warning about Christ's return, Paul called the Thessalonian believers to remain alert. So let's look at verses 4 through 8. And so listen for ways that Paul describes how believers are to await Christ's return. Verse 4. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober For those who sleep, uh, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. So looking at notes out of the NIV Study Bible, you see that phrase, There, but you, Paul uh, comforts his readers by stressing their unique status. They are children of light 
it's a Hebraic idiom uh, to be to be children of a specific quality. It meant to be characterized by by that quality. Christians do not merely live in the light, but we are characterized by the light. As such, their status differs dramatically from those outside the Christian community who foolishly look to the Roman Empire for peace and security and who will be surprised by the judgment they receive at Christ's return. So verse 6, he writes, So then, let us, based on the, the reader's status, Paul's sets forth commands for moral behavior to be awake and sober. So let us be awake and sober. These are metaphors for living in a vigilant and sober-minded way in anticipation of Christ's return. Let's, let us be ready for his re- return. Verse 8 refers to the uh, breastplate and helmet, the, the imagery originates from Isaiah 59, 17, which portrays God as a warrior uh, wearing an armor. Paul uses this military image to describe virtues, uh, varieties of virtues with which Christians should arm themselves in their spiritual battle. He refers to that in Romans 13, 2 Corinthians 6, and then, of course, Ephesians 6, Verses 10 through 17. These, these three virtues that he exhorts, that he exhorts that Thessalonians to put on, consist of a familiar triad of faith, love, and hope. And of course, we know all, all about that from 1 Corinthians 13. After describing how to remain alert for Christ's return, Paul added encouragement. So we see that encouragement in verses 9 through 11 of chapter 5. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, Paul says, encourage one another and build each other up just as, in fact, you are doing. Looking in the Bible knowledge commentary, we see that the first word for or sometimes translated because it introduces another reason why believers should prepare themselves. God's intention for them was not the wrath that will come on the earth in the day of the Lord, but instead his intention for all believers was the full salvation that will be theirs when the Lord returns for them in the clouds. Deliverance from the wrath is God's appointment for believers. This 
temporal salvation comes through the Lord Jesus Christ just as does eternal salvation. So verse 10, what did Paul mean by whether we are awake or asleep? Did he mean whether we are alive or dead or whether we are spiritually alert or lethargic? It seems that he meant the latter because he used the same words for awake and sleep as he used in verse 6 where they clearly mean spiritually alert and spiritually lethargic. If so, then Paul's point is that Christians are assured of life together with him whether they are spiritually watchful or not. That they may be, that they may live with Christ was his purpose in dying for them. They will escape God's wrath, whether they are watchful or not. So Paul, Paul wrote that Christ died not, that he was killed. Jesus Christ laid down his life Notice, no man took it from him. Uh, he, and he died for us. This simple statement of the substitutionary nature of the death of Christ required no elaboration for the Thessalonians. Doubtless, Paul had emphasized this uh, central doctrinal theme when he was with them in person, and it was foundational in their belief. So we see in the final verse the practical exhortation that Paul concluded this section, that it rose out of a, arose naturally from what he had e- explained. His readers were to do these things, to encourage and to build up or edify one another. His own encouragement and edification in the letter were not enough. This new instruction needed constant repetition and emphasis. It was to be added to the body of truth that they already received, and they were encouraging each other in their meetings and in private conversations about other revealed truths that they were, that included as well. Believers do not need to be hearing something new all the time, but they often do not, they often need to remind themselves of what they already know so that they do not forget. This verse gives some insight into the meetings of the early church. They, the early church included opportunity for mutual edification among the believers. There was mutual encouragement and edification uh, among them, but it's also needed in every local church today. The encouragement edification with reference to their hope in Christ's return is 
especially needed today. So let me show you two specific commands. We see this in, in your, uh, uh, your own quarterly personal study guide. But the two specific commands are encourage one another, build each other up. Wow, what, what a beautiful uh, encouragement for you and I and me today as we apply these truths. Paul expected the church to live out these commands in present and continually. He, had, he left no doubt what their next steps were to be. So the applications for today's lesson, Jesus will return just as he promised. The second one is believers are to live as light while waiting for his return. And finally, hope for a future is based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So praise, express praise for the certainty of Christ's return every chance you get and ask God to help you to live out your life in f- with readiness as you look forward to his return. Well, J. Wilbur Chapman wrote uh, a wonderful hymn entitled, One Day. I'm not going to read all the verses, but it, you may want to look it up in your own copy of the hymnal. You'll notice that the verses, uh, the first verse deals with the birth, the second, the death, the third, the resurrection, and then the return. There's a progression in the verses. We see it in the course as, as I'll read that course. So verse one says, One day when heaven was filled with his praises, one day when sin was as black as could be, Jesus came forth to be born of a virgin, dying among men, my example is here, is he. And then the refrain is, living, he loved me. Dying, he saved me. Buried, he carried my sins far away. Rising, he justified freely forever. One day he's coming, oh glorious day. Pray with me. Lord, thank you for the promise of your return that you will come again, and when you do, it will, we will be with you for eternity. Thank you for the hope we have in our salvation, our trust in Jesus Christ, the promise of eternal life. Thank you for this, in Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>